How's everybody doing today? Don't you always like that moment when the Lord's Supper is closing down and this solemn, worshipful moment and that bumper hits and it's like, whoa, gee, my Christmas. Whew. All right. So I uh, hope you're woken up by that. Hey, we're glad you're with us today. If you're uh, visiting with us today, we don't want to say welcome on behalf of my family and the leadership of the church. We hope that you feel welcome, whether you're just passing by and visiting or if you are checking us out for a possible church home. We want to invite you to fill out the um, connection card that you received when you walked in the door uh, and turn that in. And here's what we'll do. For every one of those turned in by a guest, we, we fit, feed a kid for a month through Feed One, which is a Convoy of Hope initiative. And so for every one of those, we will feed a kid for a month through the Convoy of Hope initiative. So we invite you to take advantage of that and jump in on that. I want to also invite you, if you haven't already done so, uh, to download our mobile app uh, from the Android or iOS marketplaces. So if you go to our website at wearelive.church and click on that link, that's the easiest way to get to it. Uh, it is a messaging platform, so not only can you like click and watch messages and keep up with things, but there's also a way to message and keep up with the church and things like that. So you want to download that. Make sure to click on Join the Community when you download the app so that we can get you added into the message part of the application. All right, so we're in a series right now called Omega. It's a study on the book of Revelation and the end times. Uh, we have covered Revelation 1, 2, and 3, and we took a brief hiatus to cover the signs of the end times in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And today we are coming back to Revelation chapter number four. So if you have your Bibles, would you pull those out? Turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter four. We're going to start reading in verse number one, Revelation chapter four, verse number one. Uh, Revelation is written by the apostle John. He's in exile on the island of Patmos under harsh persecution from the Roman government for being a Christian. And while he's in exile, he gets visited by a messenger or an angel that has a direct revelation and message from the Lord Jesus, uh, which he begins to write. Revelation 1, we have the beginning of these events and the purpose of the book laid out. Revelation 2 and 3, we have the letters, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, seven literal physical churches that existed during that time frame. And now in chapter 4, we move into the prelude to the tribulation, a heavenly visitation that is absolutely astounding. So as you turn to Revelation 4, chapter or chapter number 4, verse 1, I'm going to ask if you please rise and stand in honor of God's word for our initial and primary reading of it today. <clears throat> These are the words of the Apostle John. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice... And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. You may be seated. There have been a lot of people who have sold books and made a lot of money and gained some fame off of purported visitations to heaven, near-death experiences that they came back to write about. And a lot of them have since recanted, of course, after selling millions of copies of their book. 
But we hear a lot of strange stories of people having encounters in heaven. One individual in particular arrived at a room where they found Jesus assembling human bodies out of parts on the shelves. Yeah, I think that was the pizza that you ate the night before. Okay, I don't think that's heaven. Uh, We also have other such fascinations and stories of people who have said that they had a water fight with Jesus in the sea of forgetfulness. Yeah. Some have even claimed to talk to Jesus face-to-face, or the Holy Spirit face-to-face. But as we look at the Bible, a heavenly revelation or visitation is a rarity. It only happens a few times. One in particular, the Apostle Paul was taken up to the third heaven, okay, whatever we process with that, up to the third heaven. He was actually told not to write about the things that he saw. The Apostle John also has a visit to heaven, but he's instructed to do the exact opposite, to write about the things that he saw. So if you want to know what heaven is supposed to be, like if you want to know what heaven is like, don't run to your local bookstore and buy one of these books off the bookshelves of these people who have had these purported visions of heaven. It's right here in the Holy Scriptures. It paints a picture of the things that God actually wants us to know about heaven. Now, the first thing that I want to notice or observe from this passage that we read today is that John's attention immediately goes to the one who's on the throne. He, he, and as we work our way to verse 6, so John also works his way out from the throne and what he observes. And then he moves back to the throne and he covers what's happening around the throne itself. So as we process and move through Revelation chapter 4, here's going to be our outline. The first half of the chapter is about the one seated on the throne. The throne itself, the one on the throne, what's happening around the throne, from the throne, and before the throne. And the last part of the chapter will be the worship of the one on the throne, in and around the throne and toward the throne. But one last thing before we dive into the text and go verse by verse through this. One last question that we need to answer and understand up front is why? Why is it important? Why is Revelation chapter 4 important for us today? Why do we need this picture of heaven? Well, the, the reason why may be very similar to the same reason why John wrote the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Ephesus had lost their first love. Smyrna needed a heads up on the persecution that was going to be coming so they would remain faithful. Pergamum needed to be woken up to the danger of the false teaching that was happening in their midst. Thyatira needed to be uh, warned about the false prophetess that was in their midst. Sardis needed needed to be told, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. And Laodicea needed to be woken up from a lukewarm status. Maybe today you find yourself in a position of a similar need of refreshing. Maybe for you, the things of God have lost their luster. Maybe for you, you're struggling to find the same passion and the same fire for the Lord that you used to have. Maybe you're struggling with some of the sacrifices that God is asking for you to make in this season because you're not quite sure what the point behind all of it is. Perhaps you find yourself more interested in the things of this world and sinful pleasures rather than the things of God. The answer to this problem is we need a reminder of the things that our flesh so easily causes us to forget. We need a clear and fresh revelation of God on the throne. 
Our prayer needs to be today that these words, that these words that are alive and well, sharper than any two-edged sword, these words on these pages would transform our lives and purify us as originally intended. The whole point is to show us that God is on his throne and in heaven he's being worshipped as he rightfully deserves in his place of authority. So let's jump into this. The one seated on the throne. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Explanation point. John's excited about this. Could you imagine the scenery of getting ready to get a, a, a peering into heaven? All that John's been through. All John's walked through. They just tried to kill the guy, according to the historical record. They just tried to kill a guy by throwing him into a pot of boiling oil. And he survived, miraculously. And now he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And he's standing there and he gets to view heaven. This is probably a place that John has thought about a lot the last few days. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, the voice that John recognizes here is similar. He can easily confirm who it is, and that's because of Revelation 1.10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, vo a loud voice like a trumpet. John knows who this is. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, the word trumpet here in the Greek is salphinx, all right? The, it's not a, a high school trumpet, a high school band trumpet. It is a war trumpet. This is a warring voice of authority. I also find it interesting that when the Lord seeks to give someone a true heavenly revelation, he always invites them to come up here. Exodus 19, 24, And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them, is one example. Now the phrase, I will show you what may take place after this. This is of great significance. This is God's statement of pivoting in his chronology throughout Revelation. We see it in Revelation 1, 4, 7, 15, 18, and 19. It's the phrase that he uses to indicate that he's pivoting to a new vision or a new section of the story. This is a transition from the letters to the churches in Revelation to the things that are to come. These are things referencing the end of the world, the second return of Jesus. These events that will be following this cover the tribulation, the millennial reign, and the eternal aftermath of these events. Chapters 4 and 5 is the prelude. It's the things that are happening directly beforehand in heaven before God's wrath is to be poured out on earth for all sin. What's fascinating to note that Revelation jumps back and forth between the events that are happening in heaven and the events that are happening on earth. And what happens in heaven directly affects what is happening on earth. It usually happens in heaven first. Further making our argument that the church is out of the world at this point via the event that we call the rapture, when it talks about the church, it only references the church in heaven. It does not reference the church on earth. You do see the 144,000 witnesses. We'll get into that a little bit later. These are converts that come to Christianity after the rapture has occurred. The central theme of John's vision is the throne. Let's read verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. Now this, this phrase should not be uh, over-processed or overthought. It just simply means the Holy Spirit is giving illumination to John's 
physical capacity to be able to see, understand, comprehend things of the spirit world that takes a supernatural revelation in order to see. He says that once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now the Greek word for throne here is thronos. It's specifically a seat of authority. Now, guys, in your house, there is a place where you sit. If you're anything like me, you have a throne. I'm not talking about the porcelain throne, Mike. Okay, I'm, I'm talking about there is a throne in your house. This is where you sit. It is usually the most worn down spot in the house because it has just gotten broken in and you just got it exactly right. And the wife wants to throw it out. But it's now perfect. It's usually a recliner of some sort, but it is perfect. The airflow in this spot of the room is perfect. The vision of the TV is perfect. And when your kids set in the seat, they must be removed. <laughs> Nobody sets in your place of authority unless it's an honored guest. It's always awkward. In fact, when I go over to somebody else's house, I always identify the spot. I'm like, that's your spot, isn't it? I'm not going to sit there. No, 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 you can sit there. No, 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 you sat there. That's your spot. But that's furniture. As much as I love my spot that I sit in, I got one in two different rooms, okay? That's my spot. But as much as I love my spot, it's just a movable piece of furniture. When I move, I got to move the furniture with it. God's throne doesn't move. It's his place of authority. The word throne becomes an important theme to John throughout Revelation. The word comes up 47 times. The word is only used 66 times in the entire New Testament. The second leading book in the Bible regarding the word throne is Matthew. It uses it five times. Now, transport yourself into this time frame. There was fear for a man that sat on a throne. His name is Caesar. When you sat on a throne, you were the supreme ruler of that area. And there was reason to fear Caesar because Caesar was killing Christians in mass quantities, brutal executions. And so could you imagine John who just got thrown in a pot of boiling oil, exiled on the island of Patmos, not enough food, not enough water, all these things, abused, kicked, labor camp. And for him to be reminded that you may fear the throne of Caesar, but there's a throne above every throne that every earthly throne is subject to, and that is the living God. Psalm 47a, God reigns over the nation. God sets on his holy throne. Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord setting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There's been a lot of to do about the peripheral items of heaven. Who's standing at the gate? The pearly gates, the streets made of gold, the mansions. Will we fly? Is there going to be a Chick-fil-A? Okay, these are all important things. But at the end of the day, this account of heaven doesn't start with the peripherals. It starts with the throne. John's focus wasn't on the golden streets and the mansions and the things like that. 
John's focus was on he who sets on the throne. This is also heaven's focus. Heaven and earth and the entire universe revolves around the centerpiece of God's manifestation of his glory and his power and his majesty and his love and his mercy. Psalm 11:4. the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? John's amazement at the absolutely amazing sight of the throne of God here is unbelievable. It's not so much a piece of furniture that you can get up and move somewhere. It is fixed. It is fixed. The throne is not mobile. It's fixed. God's sovereign rule is fixed. It's permanent. It's unshakable. This vision reveals that God is permanent. He's unchanging, and he is in complete sovereign control of everything. And he's holding everything together by the power of his might. Okay. The reason for this, this vision up front and center, I believe, is this. Before we get into the trauma of the tribulation, before we get into God pouring out his wrath upon the earth for all sin, let us first know he's on the throne. And that's reassurance for all those found in Christ Jesus. Because when you're found in Christ Jesus, you're adopted into the kingdom as sons and daughters, and that's your daddy. It's... A lot better to look and say, that's my dad. I'm on his side. But those not found in Jesus, they become subjects of his wrath poured out on all sin and sinners and wickedness. So it's reassurance. Listen, the image of God on the throne is awesome because that's our dad. That's our protector. But if you find yourself as an enemy of God without Christ... It's terrifying that God's on the throne. Not only is God's holy presence on the throne, and the fact that this is immovable, reassurance during tribulation, but it is reassurance during any tribulation in your life. We're not just talking about the end times. We're talking about everything you go through. Pandemic hits, God is on the throne. Empty bank account, not sure if I'm going to be able to pay my bills. God is on the throne. Lose your job, not sure where you're going to go from here. God is on the throne. Tragedy hits your family, not sure where you're going to, how you're even going to get up enough energy to get out of bed the next day. God is on the throne. Unsure future, not sure exactly what tomorrow holds. God is on the throne. Toxic relationship, conflict in your life. God is on the throne. Don't feel like you're in control of anything. Feels like the world has fallen apart. God is on the throne. It's not just the tribulation, it's any tribulation. God is still on the throne. And that's why this is so relevant and important to us. A proper view of God remedies our anxieties about the things of this world. I'm speaking from experience. For those of you who are like me that struggle with anxiety, our problem is not anxiety. Our problem is we don't have a proper view of the authority of God on the throne. Okay. Do you think that John sees this vision of God on the throne and then goes back 
to the island of Patmos and he still cares and worries about the same things that he used to? No. Heck no. He saw God on the throne. He don't come back worried about all the same dumb stuff that he used to be worried about because he got a revelation of God on the throne. And now he shares it with us in this word. If we allow the Holy Spirit to bring us into the revelation that John received, we too can say, you know what, I'm worried about this, but God's on the throne. He really is who he says that he is. Nothing limits him. Nothing stops him. The strongest devil in hell can do nothing. The, all the strongest devils of hell combine together. Ain't nothing but a thing. Ain't nothing but a fly on my shoulder. God is on the throne. If you're struggling with your faith, read this depiction of God on the throne. And remember that if he is for you, and he's for you if you're found in Christ Jesus, then who could be against you? I get excited about this. I'm looking for y'all to jump on that train at some point. Okay? Isaiah had a similar revelation. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. When the Bible says things three times, to the superlative degree, it is infinitely important. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah had a similar challenge. Isaiah went to the temple because he was checking to see if God was still on his throne. King Uzziah was like this last, he'd been king for 52 years. He was like this last piece of goodness and godliness in the land and when he died it felt to the people of the land and it felt to Isaiah like God had been removed from his throne because all everything was going pot everything was just chaos everything was ungodliness everything was crazy so Isaiah was rushing to the temple to look and see if God was still there because in that time frame if the king got knocked off the throne somebody else was in rule and it didn't feel like God was in rule anymore and what he found was God was still there. He eternally existed there, and he eternally always will be there. And even if everything in your life feels like it's crashing down around you, God is still on the throne, and ain't nobody going to usurp that. Ain't nobody going to remove God in that position of authority. All right, let's talk about around the throne. Revelation 4.3. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, we're beginning to step into a special part of our journey through Revelation. This book is often misunderstood because of its deep, rich, vivid imagery. Revelation uses a lot of symbolic language. I read this literally, as in literally it's what John is seeing. But each element mentioned has a specific symbolic message it carries with it. Some of those messages are clear. Some of those messages are not so clear. This is the nature of prophetic writings. They often lack full comprehension to us until the events transpire. And we go back and say, oh, that's what, it, that's what that was. The full meaning of these things sometimes are a little bit locked and mysterious until they are revealed. But for the most part, with careful examination of the scriptures, they'll point us to the things that we need to know now. What we see is that Ezekiel had a very familiar vision himself in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. 
And above the expanse over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne and appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. So such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, you notice there's a phrase that keeps repeating itself here, had the appearance of. And it's key to understanding these revelations. The Greek word for this phrase is homios. Hey, homios. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> stupid. I don't know. I don't know why I say stupid things like that. But homios, okay? It means everything from the same as, identical, to similar. So there's a wide range that can fit into. So what does that mean? That means John is doing his best to describe supernatural things using natural references that he's aware of. The metals and the objects and the stones and all these things, they may not actually exist on earth. But John is doing his best to describe what he sees by what he already knows, by his natural terminology. Does that make sense? It's sort of like this. It's like, a, like if you went to a foreign country, I've got a slide here with like foreign road signs, okay? So if you went to a foreign country and you didn't know the language, but you were given a task to go from point A to point B, and all you could do was reference the icons on the signs, all you would do, all you'd be able to do is look at the picture and, and try to figure out the best of what you could do to get from point A to point B because you couldn't understand the words. You can't stop to ask the locals. You just got to drive and you got to use the pictures to understand what you can and cannot do. It's similar here. John is taking references from the natural earth that he knows and he's using it as a filter to describe the heavenly supernatural things that he sees. That doesn't mean when he says Jasper that it's actually Jasper. It just means it looks like Jasper. Does that make sense? All right, so let's cover the references. There's four specific ones. Jasper. It is a red, yellow, brown in color in modern stones. But the Bible describes a type of stone that is called Jasper that's crystal clear like a diamond. Fully translucent, able to reflect every color in the spectrum. It's long held that Jasper is a characteristic of the glory of God. It existed prominently in the Garden of Eden in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. Jasper is the first stone in the high priest's breastplate. Carnelian, also called Sardius, from which we get the name of the city Sardis. Stones that you can't fully see through, but you can see through a little bit, semi-translucent. They carry the hues of brown and red and orange. These colors represent God's wrath. Like Jasper, it's also mentioned in the Garden of Eden and the construction of the New Jerusalem. Carnelian was not the first stone in the high, priest, high priest's breastplate. It was the last one. Because of this, it's likely that the stones represent God's faithfulness to his covenant people, Israel. Rainbow. This rainbow was positioned around the throne, a symbol of God's covenant not to destroy the earth with water. It's a symbol of his patient mercy, his faithfulness, and his promise. A sign of his covenant between God and the earth. 
And it said that the rainbow appeared as emerald. This is an interesting description for a rainbow since we know the rainbow as something with all these, uh, these six colors, right? But the emerald is a color that is, the green is often a color tied to God's mercy. So what you see here in the middle is you see colors of red, yellow, and brown reflecting from the throne to indicate God stored up judgment and wrath for sin. And then around it, encased in it, is displayed God's mercy and covenant promise. So God's wrath and destruction and judgment are held in contempt or in perfect unity, not in contempt, but in perfect unity with his mercy and his grace. He will never violate his covenant and his promises in the execution of his wrath. All of these things work perfect harmony. Now, this is hard for us to understand because when humans are wrathful, you don't have mercy, do we? Somebody cut you off in traffic and you display your wrath, whether you're by yourself or not. We don't have the capability of being both merciful, graceful, and loving and wrathful at the same time. But God does, because of all of his attributes, work perfectly with each other. He's loving because he has wrath towards evil. Because his wrath and judgment extinguishes evil, he's a good judge. And his mercy shows itself because he extinguishes the evil from the world to set us free from it. All of his attributes work perfectly with each other. We don't comprehend that because we can't do that. But what we see exuding from the throne is that God's mercy and justice and enclosed inside that is God's stored up wrath building for the sin of the world that's getting ready to be poured out on the world. God's power and holiness would cause us to live in absolute terror if it weren't for his faithfulness and his mercy. God's wrath is what we deserve, but God's mercy is what we don't deserve, but it's what we receive because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Hebrews 12.29, For our God is a consuming fire. So what we have here in heaven is not a peaceful vision. It is not a vision that is comforting. It's flashing with brilliance and glory and splendor. It's really, truly a frightening experience. When Ezekiel saw this, he fell flat on his face. When Isaiah saw this, he fell flat on his face. There is no hiding from this. The Lord God Almighty sits on the throne, and his rule is established forever, and he's never going anywhere. For those that turn to him in faith through Jesus, they experience the mercy of God. And the penalty for sin was placed on Christ on the cross. And they will be spared of the judgment and the, 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 the wrath that we deserve. That was poured out on Christ. But if they refuse, they will be consumed by the wrathful fires of an omnipotent, all-powerful God. This is the gospel that what we deserve we don't get. In our faith in Jesus, as we 
willfully submit to the lordship of Jesus and we laid our lives down for the cross, that in this, God saves us through his son. He looks at us now as his son. He looks at us now as his daughter, that now we stand before God, right before him, righteous. And we won't receive the due penalty to our error, but instead Christ bore that on the cross. I'm telling you, friends, today, this image of God on the throne, it, it is either the greatest thing ever for you or it is the most terrifying thing ever for you because he will right the wrongs. That's what the tribulation is all about. He's righting the wrongs. He will set the order back into place. He will take control. He will take his place as the ruler of heavens and earth. You better believe it. You will either be found on his side, sharing in his glory, or you'll be found as a subject of his judgment and wrath. My friends, I want you to stand with me when we are in the heavenly host as saints representing Christ. Would you come into the kingdom? Would you accept Christ as Lord? Fully submit to God in your life today.